Welcome to the Church Basement Podcast. Today's topic is Saul's conversion into Paul. Grab yourself a cup of coffee or tea, strap on your running shoes, or pick up your knitting needles or crochet hook and join us. I'm Pastor Amanda Zenzelow, and I serve as the pastor at Central Lutheran Church in Northeast Portland, Oregon. And I'm Dawn Miller, a member here at Central and the producer of the podcast. Okay, I really don't know much about this one, and I know you've preached on it recently. Yeah. So let's start with where in the Bible does this show up? All right. So this happens in the book of Acts. Okay. It's not in the Gospels. We believe that the writer of the Gospel of Luke and the writer of the book of Acts is the same individual. Okay. And so Acts is like chapter two or volume two okay. of the story of God's people by the same person. And, okay. And we think that because of the opening, and I think it says in the beginning of Acts, Oh, great Theophilus, and I will continue my story. Okay. So in the book of Acts, chapter 9 is where you're going to find this particular story. Okay. And if uh, you're interested in the sermon that I preached on this, we'll post a link on our podcast to the Facebook Live where you can find it partway into the service. You can watch the children's sermon if you want. That's where I tell the story, and that was kind of fun. Okay. But you can find that on our podcast blog page for folks who find us through podcast servicers. Our podcast page can be found at centralportland.org and just click on the weekly podcast link there on the homepage and it'll link you to it. Yep. So the story comes in Acts chapter 9. We have heard of the coming day of Pentecost and the flames coming down and the early church getting started. Okay. We have heard a story about the first martyr. Okay. The Stephen has been stoned to death. Okay. Now, back up just a second. All right. Post-resurrection. Mm-hmm. But he hasn't ascended into heaven yet. Nope, oh, nope. Post-resurrection and ascension. Okay. So he's resurrected, come back, chilled out, hung out. We'll Thomas. tell another story okay. next week. So in Luke's gospel, the resurrection stories don't include the Doubting Thomas story. Oh, okay. That's a gospel of John 1. Each gospel kind of tells the resurrection account a little bit differently. Sure. Mark doesn't tell it really much at all. And then John has this whole kind of three different ways that you can see and catch Christ in the resurrected version. Okay. Luke and Matthew, there's moments of eating on the beach. and As one does. As one does. And other such things. So in Luke, we'll actually tell one of the post-resurrection pre-ascension stories in next week's podcast. Okay. But this comes after the ascension, and then the people go and they wait and they chill out for 50 days in waiting to see what's going to happen. And then the Holy Spirit comes on the great day of Pentecost, and then the church is born. And then through time, I don't know exactly how long it's been since Pentecost before this happens, but the persecutions have begun. Okay. And we get the story of the martyrdom of Stephen— Which, in short, this individual is a deacon and is the patron saint of deacons, actually. Okay. Stephen is arranging and feeding people and doing stuff with folks, and then he gets arrested. He is stoned to death. And in the process of that, the people are laying their cloaks at the foot of one named Saul. Okay. Who is approving of this murder and is glad that this murder is happening. So... We find in the beginning of Acts chapter 9, this man, Saul of Tarsus, and the description is, 
breathing fury and murder. Oh my. Isn't that a great description? Yeah, you get a pretty good view. Exactly. You get a pretty strong idea. No of, gray area. Mm-mm, nope. Saul of Tarsus, breathing fury and murder, asked the priests in Jerusalem for a letter to allow him to go to Damascus, where he could find any of the followers of the way. That's the earliest name of followers of Christ that we have, okay. followers of the way, so that he might go to Damascus and find any of the followers of the way, men or women, and have them arrested and bring them back to Jerusalem, where they would then be killed. Okay. And the priests in Jerusalem give him this letter. Sure, go for it. And he, in his zealousness and in his fury and his puritanical religious outlook, walk on the road to Damascus. And now along the road to Damascus, as they are traveling, he and his entourage of individuals, all of a sudden, a blinding light surrounds him. And this word, periastrapto in the Greek, is the same word of astrapto, which is the word used to describe the clothing of the angels inside the tomb when the women step in in Luke's gospel. Oh, that's fascinating. The other time it's used, it's translated as lightning. Okay. And the lightning that will cross the sky when the reign of Christ begins. And so this same word, it's translated as dazzling. Mm -hmm. In the word to describe the angels' clothing within the tomb, now, so this lightning clothing. As somebody from the Midwest who has uh, seen lightning crossing yeah. the sky, I am sad for the people in the Pacific Northwest who do not know what a real thunderstorm is like. I know, who right? don't have that image in their head because it, it's pretty remarkable. And it's so beautiful. It is. It really is. It is such an astonishingly beautiful thing to watch. That was one of the highlights of driving across the country. Oh, totally. Is that mom and I got lucky enough to watch a thunderstorm through... And the lightning just filling the sky one oh, night. Oh, it is amazing. Yeah, gorgeous stuff. So the lightning-clothed angels sure. are the ones who tell the women, why are you looking for the living among the dead? And it's this dazzling bright light, this lightning light that's clothing them. So the next time this word shows up is here in the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. And periastrapto is this light then surrounding him. So... He is walking along this road to Damascus, and this blinding lightning light surrounds him. And in this moment, he hears a voice saying, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he responds with, Lord, who are you? And the voice says, it is I, Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and go into town, and I will tell you what to do. And Saul is blinded. He can't see anything. Sure. He loses his sight. And the people who are alongside with him, they hear the voice, but they don't see anything. Okay. And so they're really confused, but they hear this voice. And so they take Saul by the hand and they guide him into town. And into Damascus he goes. Meanwhile, in Damascus... There is an incredible follower of the way, and I oftentimes get trapped pondering this character more so than Saul. Okay. And that is Ananias, a man of great faith. And Ananias is told by God to go to the street called Straight, to the house of the man Judas, where there is a man, Saul, from a place called Tarsus, who needs to be healed. 
And I have chosen him as an instrument, and he will suffer greatly for my sake, but he will tell the story to kings and to nationalities and to all the world. And so you are to go and heal him. And Ananias does one of those, uh, so you know he has letters to kill us all, right? Mm -hmm. This is the guy who is known to be breathing fury and murder for the followers of the way Mm -hmm. and who has permission. And of course, you know, word is going to get around and everyone in town is going to know this guy is coming. And here God is telling Ananias to go to him and to be healing for him. And the verse that blows me away in this is, so Ananias went and entered the house. I just, I don't know if I could do it. No. You know? I don't know that I could. If I knew that this person had authority to have me killed, but probably not just me, but my spouse and children. Oh, yeah. My bravery does not go that far. Right? I cannot imagine having the depth of faith to just be able. And so Ananias went and entered the room. Miracles hinge on that verse right there. Yeah. Because if who Saul becomes to us now If Ananias had not had the courage to enter that room and to administer God's healing, what would have happened? So that's me going on the tangent. If you want to hear me go on the tangent more, you can listen to the sermon. I'll get back to the story. So what happens is Ananias goes into the room and he says, Brother Saul, brother. Again, can you imagine? Brother Saul, Mm -hmm. I have been sent to heal you. And he lays his hands on Saul and scales fall from Saul's eyes and he is able again to see. And though he has spent three days in darkness, not eating or drinking anything, he is given back his vision. He is then baptized, stays with the followers of the way for a few days to regain his strength and immediately begins preaching in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. Complete and total conversion. And Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul of Tarsus, who wrote big portion of our New Testament writings. All the letters from Paul are from this particular individual. That is pretty remarkable. It's an amazing story. I mean, it's incredible to think that Saul would have this experience and would fall and become a believer, but I just get so captured by the courage of Ananias to Mm -hmm. step forward. He's incredible. So I gotta ask, Mm-hmm. Why the name change? I think that we often have a lot of name changes in our scripture when things are big, right? Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah. We have Simon become Peter. Saul becomes Paul. So anytime you see a name change in scripture, sometimes it'll address it directly and say okay. exactly why. So like when Simon becomes Peter, I have called you Peter because you are the rock upon which the church will be built. And Peter means rock. And so sometimes in scripture, they give specific reason for a name change. Other times it just happens. But anytime it happens, it's always worth noting. Okay. Because a big name change or a name change of some kind denotes some kind of shift in the individual. Okay. And I guess I'm astounded that the people around Paul are just going to go with that change too. I know. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. Like they were going along with this murder and fury guy. and then Happily. Probably, 
right? And then all of a sudden they see this happening. The scripture doesn't say that they were baptized as well. And it doesn't say whether or not they stayed and became believers. But yet there's so many figures in this. And I wonder about the individual Judas whose house they are at on the street called Straight, right? And how does this person feel about suddenly having this person of the way? Because if he was hosting Saul of Tarsus, mm-hmm. what would it be like to suddenly have this follower of the way show up in your home and perform this healing? I, it, there's so much here that is unsaid in the scripture, as much and as cinematic of a scene as we are given in Saul's conversion. There's also so much that goes unsaid and so many people and figures around this whose stories must be just fascinating as well. Yeah, I guess from a 21st century perspective, it seems a little too pat, hmm. a little too easy, a little too quick of a turnaround. Hmm. Although, I mean, the symbolism is certainly on point with blinded by lightning light strike and then scales falling. And now I see the true path. Mm-hmm. And one of the pieces that I saw this year, again, for one of the first times, was the piece of, he will suffer greatly for my name. And Paul really does suffer. Okay. And he is arrested a ton. He's beaten. He's in a shipwreck. There's a ton of ways in which Paul suffers greatly for the damage that he has done in life and suffers greatly for his cause and for the gospel and for so the sake he of does more it. than just write letters back and forth to all the new congregations well he has to go to them in order to build them okay and to have someone to write back to so he does a ton of traveling just an absolute enormous amount of traveling in, well and in just because years. he has been converted does not mean that the majority of people are accepting of this new way of religion either right, right. that tide has not changed to just saul correct just saul and even I would say that you see in the book of Acts this kind of tension being created then between Peter and Paul. Peter as a disciple who knew Christ directly during his lifetime Mm -hmm. and who was also Jewish, but who had been in from the start, so to speak. And then you have Paul, this upstart who never met Christ in person except here on the road, Mm -hmm. right? but did not meet him during his earthly ministry, who is also Jewish, but who started to teach and preach that Jesus could be for the Gentiles also. Mm. A new twist. A twist, right? That it's bigger than. And Peter was thinking that it was only for those who were Jewish. Mm. And so if we think that our struggles about who's in and who's out and who's good enough to be a Christian is just a new thing, we're we're right wrong, right? It's been going on from the start. The earliest question was whether or not you had to convert to Judaism to be a Christian. Or whether you could just become a Christian without having to be a Jew first. Knowing what I know about especially all the anti-Semitism going on mm-hmm. is so fascinating to hear that as backstory. Yeah, and it's it was a big piece. Mm-hmm. And Peter and Paul had a kind of a rivalry. So Peter ended up working within the community in Jerusalem and within the Jewish community. And Paul really started taking the gospel outside of the Jewish community and in a larger way. And while Peter eventually had a vision that led him to open his heart to understanding that the Gentiles were genuine followers of the way, there was really this difficulty over who was the true head of the church kind of thing. Is Mm -hmm. it Peter? 
and the church in Jerusalem and Jesus' brother James were really the ones who have the authority or this zealot Paul who's traveling hundreds of thousands of miles and getting arrested and performing mm-hmm. miracles and big flashy figure. Getting out, doing the work, being flashy. Right. Hmm. That's right. So that was Paul. And so his letters were written back to the different communities as he was traveling. And we hear a lot about the persecutions that he faced and the ways in which he had a ton of pain that he faced and a ton of torture and arrest and all kinds of things. He did not have an easy life and eventually was martyred. Hmm. Absolutely. As was Peter, both of them were killed. Such an unhappy story. (laughs) And that's the origin of the Christian faith. It's the start of our story. But I think people have a really hard time with a lot of Paul's writings, right? He has really strong opinions on things. And I don't think that we would expect anything less from someone who's described as well with that kind of a conversion. Fury and murder, right? He's not a No, he's not a shrinking violet bany stretch. Not at all. And one of the ways that I've tried to explain to people how we can take some of Paul's legalism that come through so strongly in his writings is one, he was a Pharisee. He was someone who really did love legal rules and following and abiding by rules. So it totally fits his temperament that he's going to come up with big, strong statements to begin with in his writing. The other is, and I don't like the dynamic that this can set up, but if we think about when you're learning something new, oftentimes the rules are stronger and harder and the boundaries are bigger and harder than when you've learned the basics to get started. And the Christian faith was learning the basics of how to live in a very different way. Religion at the time was not the provider of moral standards. Hmm. It was a very different understanding. Judaism did that, but it was the exception to the rule, especially among the Gentiles. And so when Paul is coming into these communities and trying to teach them that from our faith comes our moral and ethical guide, he really did it kind of like a preschool teacher, Mm. right? You will sit here and you will sit crisscross applesauce, hands in the middle. Your coat is going to go into a black bag Mm -hmm. outside the room Mm -hmm. and get hung up in this place. And by the time you get to first grade, maybe you don't have to have quite that. And by the time you get to be a senior in high school, you really don't have to have quite as many of those rules, right? But at the beginning, you start with some real strict, real clear rules until you work your way through. And I think that a lot of Paul's early writings were to communities who really needed that kind of strict, clear voice to help them know what is this new religion about? How are we doing this? And how are we living differently because of this person, Jesus? I know a lot of folks have a really hard time with Paul's writings Mm -hmm. because they have been really abused and they've been used to harm people a lot throughout history. Sure. And I think that to throw it out and to not explore and dig into who he was and why he was how he was, we miss a lot. You know, we would lose the body of Christ imagery. I don't know that there is a more powerful way to break down barriers between people than to really begin to embrace the whole idea of the body of Christ. So this is his origin story. Mm -hmm. This is where he comes from. And this is where he starts out. And it's a pretty incredible story. Well, this is a very interesting lead in to my final question. Mm-hmm. That looking back now in an era of Me Too and apologies, mm-hmm. most of which I would say are pretty poor apologies yep. for things that are going on today. 
how do we take this view of someone like Paul who made such a 180? Yeah. How do we take that? Because it's not like he started off with, oh, I'm so sorry for all the persecutions that I did. Right. So sorry about killing Stephen. Exactly. Wasn't me. It was totally the people who were around me who did it. How do we use this as a redemption? How do we move forward with giving forgiveness Mm. and redemption? And how does that work? It's such a good question. And I think it's a deep question, right? Especially because we aren't taught how to apologize well. No. We really aren't. And learning how to do that is so hard when we don't see it around us anywhere right now. I mean, I don't know if Paul ever apologized. I would have to wonder if he ever did. I would wonder about whether or not he ever reconciled with the community in Jerusalem for real. Okay. I mean, he traveled a ton and he tried maybe, but there was always tension and I could understand that. Mm-hmm. Totally. I wonder in that kind of an instance, what is the kind of accountability and reconciliation that Paul needed or Paul may have sought or Paul never received with those whom he harmed. Maybe it never happened. Maybe that was just another part of the suffering he did endure for the sake of the gospel was the guilt of knowing that his actions among the people of the way kept him on the outside of everyone, Mm -hmm. you know, never truly accepted and welcomed by them and and maybe not truly accepted and welcomed by the Gentiles, but maybe accepted and maybe listened. Like, I mean, I think he just had a really hard life. And I think he sowed the seeds to have a really hard life. He sowed them by being a zealot persecuting the church and he sowed them by being a zealot building the church. And I think that as much as he leaned into and accepted the peace of Christ that surpasses understanding, I think he still had a very hard and difficult life. And that is part of the accountability of the lifestyle he led. Can we look to people who are making these big life shifts and give them a second chance? Well, I don't know. History will tell us. We're looking back on this 2,000 years later. Sure. And have the luxury of time and distance to be able to say, oh, he really was a good tool in God's toolbox rather than just a, a jerk who killed people. And we give him space. I mean, he was still a jerk who killed people. Right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. How do we hold people in our day and age accountable and yet give room for holy moments of conversion? Mm-hmm. I think our call is to live into holding grace for the possibility that God can absolutely redeem and change a person and continue to hold people deeply accountable to the mistakes that they've made and to the actions and the choices that they have taken. And I don't think that Paul ever got off easy from what he had. I think that even in his call story, he is told he will suffer greatly. Yeah, you will suffer greatly to tell this story. And that's what's going to happen. And I think he does that. And so I don't think there's a, oh, well, he means better. He said Mm -hmm. he didn't mean it. He said he believes now. So we have to just let it go. Like, no. He said he believes now. Great. Being a follower of the way is really hard. Mm-hmm. And there's some accountability you got to step into. And get ready, because the cost is high to be a follower of the way. Fascinating.
Well, thank you, Pastor Amanda, for taking the time to help us learn a little more about Saul's conversion. I look forward to sitting down with you another week on another topic. As do I. And thank you all for joining us. If you have thoughts about this or reflections that you would like to share with us, we would love to hear from you at podcast at centralportland.org at our email, or you can catch us on Facebook. Until we are back in your ears again, remember, God loves you no matter what.